Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Stack Journey podcast, where uh, I, Scott, your host, talk with a guest about the ongoing evolution of the IT professional and the journey of learning that stretches across the full stack of technologies in today's data centers and in public cloud. Um, as always, my purpose here is to uh, have a very practical, real-world conversation with a guest about a particular technology area or a technique or a methodology to give uh, the listeners information that they can put to work right away and uh, just to help folks along their, their journey of education and learning, helping IT professionals stay relevant, helping IT professionals continue to develop and grow across the course of their career. Really appreciate you guys taking the time to join uh, me and my guest today. And in this episode, I'm going to be talking with Kurt Michael. We're going to be talking about defensive Terraform. Kurt, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing, man? Hey, thanks, Scott. Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure. So um, obviously, uh, you know, readers don't know, but you and I work together. We're, we're, we're colleagues at Heptio. And uh, so we've had some interactions around the, the topic of infrastructure as code and Terraform and that sort of thing. But um, before we get into uh, that discussion... How about you just, you know, maybe share with the listeners a little bit about your background, how you came to be where you are today, um, you know, sort of the, the things that uh, made you who you are. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so I started working on computers around 98, taught myself just because I kind of wanted to hack around. And so I've been a sysadmin, ops dude, SRE person uh, for about the last 18 years professionally, I guess. Um, I've worked at uh, GitHub, Heroku, Simple. Lots of experience on large systems and small systems. Um, and uh, you can pretty much find me everywhere on the internet by Senchi, which is uh, just the hacker name that I go by, <laughs> you know, trying to be cool like in the 90s. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I just really picked up Terraform in the past year or so. And uh, previous experiences around like cloud formation and other different types of configuration management. So I have a lot of ideas that I'm assuming we're going to get into here. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's perfect, and that's uh, a pretty pretty nice um, you know laundry list of organizations there. You know, uh, GitHub and, and others to have uh, cutting cutting your experience as a, as an ops professional um, and gaining lots of experience in uh, large large scale systems. So that's that's cool. Um, yeah, so you know the the topic for today and and uh, it really comes out of a conversation you and I had. Um, I was working on a customer project and helping them with some Terraform. And uh, I said, you know, hey, uh, here's here's Kurt. He's part of our SRE t- SRE team at Heptio. He's responsible for managing uh, inf- production infrastructure now uh, using Terraform. So let me pick his brain a little bit about, you know, kind of what would be the best approach to take uh, in in setting up a, a good production grade you know, Terraform setup. So we we had some back and forth, and and you know, you shared some ideas and some things to help me. And I thought, you know, this is this is really the kind of stuff that. For folks who want to get into infrastructure as code, this stuff is like gold, right? But none of the resources that I had found when I was teaching myself Terraform or working with CloudFormation, none, none of the resources I had found had ever like shared this stuff, right? And so I thought it would be really, really great to kind of get you on the show. And I really appreciate you taking time. I know it's after hours for you, so thanks for that. But I uh, wanted to get you on the show and just kind of talk about that. So let's let's start with, um, just to make sure that that at a high level, make sure that the listeners are kind of following us, what we're talking about here, infrastructure as code. How would you define infrastructure as code? Yeah, so this, I don't know how long this term has been around, but it's it's kind of the idea of where you start treating your infrastructure like objects in the same way that you would treat like an object in a programming, uh, you know, in some type of program and software so that you can easily reprie- reproduce them, you can change configs and update them. 
Um, but it really makes it more explicit in the way that you manage your infrastructure. Uh, previously, um, you know, like you would probably go click on a dashboard or you would, you know, create a, a script that you would run on a computer and you kind of throw the script away um, and configure your VM that way. This kind, of, this kind of gets into the idea of more reproducible, um, easier to manage explicit um, structures around your infrastructure. And and so you might also say that that's it's uh, one of the definitions that I found, and I think this was this was actually from, uh, and I, the, the name of the author is totally escaping me at the moment. Uh, shame on me. Oh, Keith Morris, uh, the O'Reilly book, Infrastructure as Code. Um, and he he used the definition of like applying software development methodologies to managing infrastructure. And I think that kind of goes hand in hand with what the, the definition that you just provided. You know, it's it's about providing some sort of way of, of having repeatable, you know, reproducible outputs that are configuring or instantiating infrastructure units out of some sort of programmable, you know, resource layer, whether it be a public cloud or somebody's, you know, private data center with you know, the appropriate software running, et cetera, et cetera. Um, right. And so, yeah, I was going to add on. So previously, you know, like when I first started in sysadmin and IT, you'd kind of have this operations team that managed all the hardware and the configurations and people would just kind of tell them what they wanted it to look like or what they were going to run. And then they would go and configure it and be done. And you'd have like, you know, maybe five computers that were running to do this. And as we've gotten into the cloud and scaled, it's been, we want to remove that institutional knowledge from that team, put it into a place where we can manage it in a more reasonable way, the same way we do our software. So it's really beneficial. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I love that. I love that phrase right there that you just added, removing the institutional knowledge from individuals, right? Because how many times, and, and I, I know, I just know that listeners are going to be able to identify with this, but how many times has it been like, okay, you know, who, who set this up? Oh, you know, he left six months ago or, you know, like, uh, oh, it's Bob, but, but, you know, Bob's out sick today and can't be reached and we really need to change something. And, and so you get this knowledge that's like in people's heads and they're not putting it in a shared place where the entire team can get away from that. Right. So I think that idea, uh, it almost feels like, and I'd, I'd love to hear your thought on this real quick. It almost feels like that idea of getting the knowledge out of people's heads is, is almost, or is as important as sort of the other aspects of infrastructure as code, namely, you know, sort of the, the predictability and repeatability and producibility aspects of it. Yeah, so exactly. So an institutional knowledge is really this piece that we've kind of held uh, for so long. And I, I don't know why, but it really, we need to get rid of that ego in computers and our industry really kind of suffers from that sometimes. Having that institutional knowledge means we're not able to easily repeat what we, the work we do. We're not easy. It's not easy to test it. It's not easy to share it. Um, and in any way that we can extract that knowledge out of someone's head and put it into either a repo, documentation, pr- procedures and policies, it's just going to benefit them, the team and the company. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And so I, I think that, you know, listeners, if there's just if even if there's just one takeaway that you get from this, and, and I think there will be a lot more than just one takeaway um, based on what I learned uh, in my conversations with Kurt. But if there's you know one takeaway you want to get away from this, it's it's that a lot of the focus on infrastructure as code is about this this repeatability. And that's important. But equally important um is this idea of, of getting that knowledge out of people's heads and getting it into documentation and getting it into some sort of central repository, some sort of central location where, uh, you know, everyone benefits the entire team, the entire company, everybody is, is, is able to, to move forward. 
So um, now within the context of infrastructure as code, there's a lot of different tools, but in this particular episode, I want to focus on one tool in particular, and that's Terraform. Um, so uh, if you would, real quick, Kurt, um, I'm familiar with Terraform. I've written about it quite a bit on my on my site. Um, I think we've spoken about it a couple times on the show. But for for listeners who may be unfamiliar with it, um, give us a real high-level um, overview of, of kind of what Terraform is and how it works, if you don't mind. Sure. So Terraform, I don't know when it was released. It's been out for a couple of years for sure. But uh, it's released by HashiCorp. Um, it's pretty much, it's kind of a, um, it's just a way to describe resources in the cloud. Uh, there's, there's lots of different providers, so it's not just cloud, but a way of describing infrastructure. For example, if you want to boot an instance in a database and you have like a volume attached to that, you can describe this in Terraform, plan what that will look like, um, and then you apply it, and it, Terraform will go out and construct those resources on that provider. Um, what's great about this is that Terraform constructs its own dependency graph, and so it kind of does the steps, the proper steps in order to realize those uh, features. Um, and it really kind of leapt the industry forward as far as this infrastructure as code goes, and really making it much easier to uh, define and manage infrastructure and so whole. Now, one interesting thing about Terraform, and, and I think this will be sort of central to a lot of our discussion, is this idea of, of state. And that is, you know, you ask Terraform to go do something and, you know, to go, uh, you know, instantiate some virtual machines or some instances in a public cloud or, or a block volume or whatever the case is, right? And, and then it, it has to somehow capture, you know, yes, I did that or no, I didn't or whatever the case is. And so it has to store that. Um, and, and that becomes rather, rather critical in sort of how Terraform works, right? Right. Yeah. So basically when you, when you define your resources, you want to think of this as your intent, right? So my intent is to bring up this instance and database and its volume. Um, when, when Terraform realizes that, when it puts it into reality, it saves what it's done into a, a JSON file. Um, and this is that state file that Terraform uses then to know what it has in, in its control. And then anytime you make changes, those changes are applied to that state file uh, and obviously the resources as well. But it's it's stored in that state file via like serial numbers or somehow they keep track of it. Um, I don't think those details are too important here. But yeah, so that state file becomes vital to your infrastructure. And that's basically your infrastructure uh, the, the inventory for the, your infrastructure. Gotcha. Now, uh, it may be obvious to some, but I want to just make sure that we call this out, right? If, if Terraform is sort of capturing, uh, you know, the state of the infrastructure in this state file, um, you know, you, you expressed your intent in the Terraform configuration to say, I want to, you know, instantiate a, a, an instance and a database and a volume or whatever the case is, you know, networks and subnets and security lists or whatever, and then it goes out and it does that, talking through the provider to whatever platform you're, you're talking to, whether it be AWS or Azure or Google or, you know, whatever, right? right. Um, and then it captures that. Then, um, you know, that means that we really shouldn't be making changes to that stuff that it's created because then we would, we would introduce sort of a, a disconnect between what Terraform thinks is there and what's actually there. Is that right? Right, yeah. So Terraform basically owns that reality. Uh, whatever it is managing, you want Terraform to continue to manage it. If you start to make changes out of band or out of scope of Terraform, Terraform will get very confused and 
does not know how to reconcile that. So it will just kind of stop doing its work. And similarly, if something happens to that state file, then Terraform's understanding of reality is also affected. Like if that if that state file becomes damaged or corrupted, then Terraform has no way of sort of understanding what that reality is, right? Right, exactly. And so, yeah, if, if that state file becomes corrupted or is edited by any means, which you, you never want to edit it. <laughs> Let's put a giant warning on that. You never want to hand edit or touch the state file. Let Terraform do it. Um, but yeah, so if, if Terraform doesn't know about it or it's state file doesn't work, then Terraform can't, uh, work within that reality anymore. It's going to try to create a new one. So for example, let's say I have an instance and I, for some reason, blow up my state file, uh, out of, out of band. So I like edit the JSON to change the instance ID. The next time I go to run Terraform plan, it's going to say, oh, okay, I'm going to create a new instance because it doesn't know it cannot render its state with what's in resources. So if it doesn't see the instance that I edited, it's going to say, well, I got to create a new one. Um, and so you're, you're kind of creating a new reality and Terraform doesn't know how to really ever bridge those two gaps. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. And then one final question, then I want to move into sort of this idea of, of uh, defensive Terraform, which is a term I think that, that you came up with. Uh, you mentioned Terraform plan. So, the, the process that a, that a user should follow is something like they write the configurations. Uh, maybe they need to do an init, but that's a separate sort of discussion. We'll ignore that for right now. But um, then they need to do a plan. And the plan is basically where Terraform says, okay, let me go out and figure out what is actually out there and what I need to change to make what's out there look like what the user has asked me to create. And then from there, then you do a Terraform apply to say, okay, now I want you to actually go do whatever is necessary to, to make it look like what I want you to look like. So it's sort of a multi-stage process. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So plan is for Terraform to basically set itself up to be successful. <laughs> if you want to think of it that way, it goes out, looks at the resources it knows about in its state file and compares those with what's at the res- uh, or at the provider. And if they, those differ, then it'll, you know, show a diff of some type. If they don't exist, it'll do a create, um, you can also save that plan so you can always run that plan again. Basically, the plan is where it develops its dependency graph. It's where it kind of tells itself what steps it needs to take to build this. And then you run an apply of that plan and it goes out and executes that using its provider plugins and all those various mechanisms. Got it. Perfect. OK, so I think we've given the listeners a, a good um, foundation on which to to focus the rest of our conversation. So. Now let's move uh, quickly into sort of what I what I consider to be one of the real highlights of of the, the sh- this episode, and that is this idea of defensive Terraform. Break this down for for well, I think you already did it for me. We did it by Slack, but break it down for the listeners. What are we talking about when we talk about this idea of defensive Terraform? What are, what are we protecting ourselves against by adopting this approach? Yeah, so defensive Terraform is this term I came up with. I had to do a talk uh, at some conference or some group here locally. Um, basically, when you're managing infrastructure, anything that has state becomes a, a kind of a, a hotspot, right? So like databases, anybody who's managed a database knows that you have your data inside that database and you can't, managing it becomes a lot more difficult. So with Terraform, since it has a state file, we now have a hotspot. Um, it's now that state file is now one of the most important parts of our infrastructure. 
And what I found when I started to work with Terraform was that any blog post read the documentation, they always talked about this kind of holistic view of your infrastructure within a single state file. And that was the way they were building up their intentions, right? They're, they they intended for their infrastructure, like a whole dev environment to look, you know, the resources to be laid out this way. When they do a plan and apply, then their, their entire infrastructure is now in a single JSON file in that state. That's kind of dangerous. Um, and for me, I, I, I'm, I'm, I love state because I love working on databases and stuff, but I also know when I need to like break it up and start to normalize my patterns around it. So when I first started getting into Terraform, uh, actually I learned a lot from CloudFormation, my work on CloudFormation, AWS's CloudFormation, similar ideas, is I started to figure out a way to use Terraform to isolate my changes so that if my state file were to be corrupted, or if I were to make changes to something or to any entity in my infrastructure, it, they were isolated and minimal, and I could have a lot more confidence in applying those changes. So there's a number of mechanisms I use to do this, and we'll get into that. But it, it's all about isolating your changes on Terraform so that when you do a plan and apply, you have a lot of confidence and you kind of limit the blast radius of that work. Right. And I think this this is uh, this was what was really fascinating to me and 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 to echo a statement that you had is, is uh, for a lot of folks who are out there and they may be looking at trying to understand how to use Terraform. Almost every single example, every single tutorial, every single walkthrough, um, all of that, they all assume the idea of having these, these you know, sometimes large collections, but these collections of, of, of resources all defined in a single state file. So they'll say, oh, you can have your entire dev environment, which is going to be, you know, to use a, an AWS example, a VPC and an internet gateway and an at gateway and some public subnets and some private subnets and some route tables and some security lists and some instances and all in one state file, right? Security groups, database instances. Yes, all of that, all in one single large JSON file. And if anybody's worked with JSON, first of all, it's a nightmare. But second of all, <laughs> your, your entire infrastructure is now sitting in this one little file. And there's a couple problems here, right? We have state that is now sitting on disk on someone's computer. So we need to figure out ways to share that and collaborate around that. Um, we also now have this problem that, so one thing to mention about Terraform is that Terraform does not resolve its reality. Uh, what I mean by that is when you have, when you set up its in your intentions and you give that to Terraform, if it encounters an error during this work, it will not back out, it will not go, there's no rollback, it will just stop. So if it's partially applied in infrastructure, for example, let's use our dev example, if it's updated a VPC or an instance within that, and it fails on like a security group, for example, it'll just stop. So now your state file is in a partial, like, I don't wanna say partial state, but it's, it's, it's not fully realized, your reality. And Terraform doesn't know how to reconcile that. The next time you run it, it's going to fail again, but it's already touched some resources and not others, and you're now kind of stuck. So now you don't have any confidence because you don't know what this JSON file looks like, and your state's, from your perspective, corrupted. It, it, the JSON file is probably still a legitimate JSON. I think Terraform's pretty good about you know, making sure it writes out a, the right file, but you're still, you don't have this confidence now to go apply again because you, you're not sure how to reconcile this. And if Terraform can't reconcile it, then you have to figure out how to piece this back together. And that's, that's not fun. 
Yeah, because in order to piece this back together, you know, here you are with sort of a, a half-realized uh, configuration, you know, where some pieces have been touched and other pieces haven't been touched. And if you're going to go fix that, that means, one, going and touching infrastructure that is supposed to be managed by Terraform, which we said not to do. And two, editing a state file, which we said not to do, in order to point it to that right thing to try and stitch reality back together again or stitch Terraform's reality back together again in a way that would allow us to move forward. I mean, is that right? Yes, exactly. And another way to look at this is that you have two sources of truth when you use Terraform. And for anybody who's worked in computers, you know that two, for, two sources of truth is not fun if they get out of, you know, it's a split brain situation, right? The, the two sources, uh, just to be clear here, is you have the provider and the actual, let's say, for example, on AWS, you have where the instance lives and their configuration that they know about and are billing you for. And Terraform has its reality and its state file. If those aren't in line, I mean, those are the two sources of truth, but if they're not in line, you have a split brain configuration now, and that's where you start to lack the, con- the confidence to actually go and fix this using Terraform. Okay, so I think this is, this is a, a really important you know, point, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm so thankful that I'm able to get you on the show and share this with the listeners, because as I mentioned, you know, this, just, this does not jive with all the tutorials and all the walkthroughs about people out there sharing how to use Terraform, right? I mean, even, even examples that I have created to, to try and teach others or follow this, this same sort of flawed model of, of throwing all this stuff together and not limiting, you know, the blast radius or the failure domain in the event that there is some sort of problem and, and, you know, the state becomes, let's say, logically corrupted, right? Um, in terms of, you know, halfway through, a, uh, you know, a Terraform apply, it fails and it counts an error. And of course it doesn't back out. And then we find ourselves in this split brain scenario that you were just describing. So let's get into the mechanics. How can, uh, how can users who want to embrace Terraform, how can they protect themselves against this sort of problem? Yeah, so there's a number of ways here, um, and it all kind of, it's kind of specific to your situation. But one of the first things we need to do is we need to figure out a way to break up the state file. Um, the way that I've kind of, it, it took me a, a couple months to come up with this way, but the way I've started doing this is I break up log, uh, the infrastructure into logical entities. And I'm going to keep using our dev example and our instance and database example. So in this world, I, I, I want to have an application instance in the database and, you know, a volume where that data lives. So I would say that there's, those are three logical entities in this world, in my, in my Terraform world. So my instance has some supporting resources like a security group, maybe uh, some keys or something. Those I would put together in one Terraform run. And I would plan and apply that. Now, the cool thing about Terraform is it has outputs. It really buys into this idea that there's inputs or variables. There's a way of filtering them or your resources. And then these outputs that produce the rendered reality that you you want to act upon. So what you can do then is now in your database manifest, in your your database resources, you can address, you can pull in that instant state. Uh, into your database state and use those as read-only values to connect your database to your application instance, for example. Um, same with your volumes. So like volumes and database instances, you, you really want to kind of manage them separately because your state isn't, you want to kind of isolate your state in that configuration. So in your EBS volume, you'll, you'll have this configuration, your snapshot set up, whatever, and you can pull in the instance data that you're going to attach it to. Rather than managing those all in one location, 
you can now, you'll manage them in three locations and reference them and build. And really what you're doing is you're building your own dependency graph. Terraform will do this if you put them all in the same state file, but, or all in the same manifest. But what we're doing is we're building up our own dependency graph. We're building up these infrastructure pieces individually and then orchestrating them together on our own terms rather than Terraform's. Um, okay. So you mentioned a couple of things and I want to just kind of recap that for the listeners. Um, one, we're talking about breaking this up into, into like separate logical resources. And those logical resources could be, you know, uh, all your instances or all your instances for a particular purpose, you know, or, um, you know, it could be your networking aspects or it could be, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, database instances and volumes that the database instances use, for example, right? Breaking these right. things up into, into logical groupings and then managing the state for that such that these logical groupings each have their own state and then where where it's required for various reasons whether it's because you need a vpc id again you know listeners we're using aws specific examples but same concepts apply to other providers you know whether you need a security list id or a subnet id or whatever the case may be you pull in that that particular you know state from that logical resource as a read only sort of data source and, and that way you can pull out, you know, oh, here's the ID of the VPC I created, or here's the ID of the security group that, that I created or whatever it is. And then you can use it as needed when, when creating these other resources. And, and the byproduct of that is we end up with multiple state files so that the issue of a state file become, becoming either like actually corrupted from damage on disk or whatever the case may be, or logically corrupted because we got halfway through an update and it failed, um, is that only that particular grouping of resources is affected, not the entire environment? Correct. And where the, the other benefit here is is when you get into um, what Terraform terms as remote state. When you when you're on a team and you're collaborating, you want to push that state off. If you had one large state file, it's going to put a lock around that entire state file, so you're locking all your other team members out by breaking this up into these entities. You now can all work in parallel on this one infrastructure. Uh, without too much conflict. Obviously, there's going to be some communication there because you're using those values. But as your infrastructure gets larger, you can start working in smaller spaces and have confidence in those smaller spaces without blowing up everybody else's work. Yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't actually even considered the idea of state locking. Um, but, you know, if you are storing state somewhere like, uh, you know, S3, for example, right, which is a, a very common configuration, and you're using, uh, I think Terraform requires a DynamoDB table to do the state locking, um, yeah, but if that were, yep. right. If that were all in one state file, then, you know, if you needed to make some change to one part of the, uh, the overall environment and I needed to make some changes to a different unrelated part of the environment, we wouldn't be able to do that in sort of at, at, in parallel, right? Because we'd both be trying to lock that state file at the same time. Um, but if we break these state files apart, then potentially, and again, the devil's always in the details, we may be able to be working in parallel as long as, you know, we don't have any sort of very strong direct dependencies on like, you know, obviously I wouldn't be like changing VPCs out from underneath your instances, for example, but you get the point. Right. Exactly. And the devil's actually deeper in the details on the first thing when you have this giant state file is if, if whoever gets the first lock wins, right. In Terraform's, in Terraform's world, whoever gets the first lock wins. So when you apply your state, if somebody ran a plan and you ran your plan and apply before they ran their apply again, they're going to corrupt their state file. They're going to cause problems. So it becomes a lot harder to communicate those changes with the larger the state file is. And 
you get into this place where that isolation really becomes a comfort. It also becomes a lot. You're able to execute a lot faster. So the, the term that came to mind as you were describing me describing there the the idea of you know somebody running a plan and apply and somebody else running a plan and apply, but their plan being sort of out of date because this other person ran the apply first is a is a state collision, right? I don't even yes. know if that's an actual thing, go. but it sounds like a good phrase to use. It sounds perfect. Yeah, exactly. And this is another little tip here while we're talking about this, because this isn't, I mean, this is defensive terraform, but uh, this is just one little tip is every time you generate a plan, you should save that plan. You can, there's a little flag called out on it. You save that plan because the next time you go to apply, you know, for sure you're applying that plan. And if that plan doesn't match the state that terraform knows about, it'll bail out early rather than trying to, guess what the situation is in the state file that you haven't seen changes to. Does that make sense? Well, okay. So let me just, let me just make sure I understand. Cause I, I will, I will admit I am guilty of not saving the plan, right. And not using the out parameter. So, um, but it sounds like if I, if I understood you correctly, that um, if I, if I save that plan and then I try to go do an apply and, and there's a safe plan there, that I could actually protect myself against logical corruption because Terraform would see that the plan doesn't work and bail out before it actually gets like halfway through. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. It'll see that it's in an earlier generation than the state file may have been changed. I think they, I think the term they use is lineage. Um, so for example, like there's a serial number in the state file, right? And so you and I are working and I, you run a plan on your intent and you don't save it. And I run a plan and apply real quick. When you run a plan again, it's you're 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 going to have to run plan again in order to to work again, right? But if you were to save that file and you run it, it would immediately see that there's a conflict in the lineage and just bail out. So you're kind of like putting a little safety net around yourself to make sure that you're not running a plan against a state file that you, that is changed underneath you. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And that's, that's a, that's a, that is actually, that's a super useful tidbit to know because I didn't know that. And I, I, I dare to venture that a lot of the listeners probably didn't know that, that tip as well. Um, so that's, that's good to know um, that you can, in, in certain aspects, you can protect yourself against this logical corruption that we've been talking about by being sure to save the plan um, are, and, and just real quick before we move on off of this, this idea, um, is there benefit to like, we, we talk about storing, you know, the, the manifests or the configurations uh, for Terraform in some sort of version control repository, often like a Git repository, right? To facilitate version tracking and changes and who made the changes, all that kind of stuff. And that's all, you know, pretty straightforward. Um, but is there some benefit to actually putting the plan into a, into that same version control repository as well? Uh, not the plan. The plan is actually a binary representation of the Terraform dependency state graph. I don't know what you would term that, but it's just a it's a binary that they render. Um, and as soon as you change your, as soon as you apply it, it is no longer relevant. So you can't reapply a plan once it's been applied. Gotcha. Okay. All right. That's fine. Just wanted to see if there was some, you know, reason why somebody might do that. Then there isn't. So cool. Um, all right, great. So defensive Terraform, just to kind of summarize, the idea of sort of protecting yourself and enabling, you know, better collaboration and better uh, work across a team by splitting up, uh, among other things, splitting up a state file into logical groupings 
and uh, and then also being sure to leverage, you know, sort of this idea of of remote state, you know, leveraging um, an S3 or some other type of equivalent rather than relying on any form of local state, because obviously that's clearly not going to scale in any sort of multi multi user team, right? Correct. Yeah. Uh, remote state. I want to talk about that for a second, if we could. Uh, the remote state is absolutely vital and is not well documented. Um, I mean, the, the Terraform documentation, once you know what to ask for, it has it, but it's not blogged about a lot. And remote state is so important for Terraform to be successful, in my opinion, because of a couple of things. One is Terraform does not know how to like write out secrets. Like it, it's always going to put secrets into a state, state file. So if you're going to put your state file in, in Git, for example, you're putting your secrets out there if you're going to use GitHub or GitLab or whatever. So first of all, you don't want to, you want to kind of protect your state file that way. So putting it remote, encrypting it is really the best way to do it. The second thing is the locking mechanisms. Um, you get that locally, but obviously if you're on a team, that only scales to one. So if you're going to have more than one person working on it, you want to have more locking around it, and it's going to always be really safe around its release and apply of that lock. Um, and the other thing I would say about remote state that I really, really like, and this is a benefit that I did not know about early on, was let's say I have a Git repo and I have my little logical area that I'm going to run. When I point that at a state uh, state path, let's say in S3, for example, AWS S3, I can write out this whole long path of where that state file will live. So I can start namespacing this around environments, um, around what we call ecosystems at Heptio, but it's basically a logical grouping of products. Um, but that pathing then, I can give a lot of uh, protection around that from a policy standpoint, meaning users can only run, let's say I have a network admin. I, only can, I can give him access to only the network entities, um, for example. So there, there's a lot of really great benefits for doing remote state that you don't get when you do a local state file. Yeah, that idea of breaking apart um, responsibility for different areas. So saying to the network team, hey, I'm going to give you ability to access the keys for a remote state that affect networking, but not to the sysadmins, for example. That's a really interesting aspect that I hadn't considered that will just help you scale infrastructure as code beyond sort of the... Um, for lack of a better term, the more the traditional places where people see that, you know, in SRE and DevOps roles, we see those types of roles leveraging infrastructure as code. But really, we want to see infrastructure as code be taken up by by the network team, by the security team, by the sysadmins, by the desktop team, right? To give that same repeatability, reproducibility, all those benefits, um, you know, the, the pulling of, of knowledge out of people's heads into a shared repository across all those groups, not just in the the you know traditionally infrastructure is code friendly groups, exactly. And we we've been even doing um, well. It's kind of a newer thing, but we've been doing vault policies in Terraform, um, and a lot of that pathing and that security level in, in HashiCorp's vault we can start managing in Terraform, and that way we can say, uh, like for example, the security team can take that over and manage those policies and hand people different paths to their keys without giving the whole world to them. So it's been really really great. Awesome. Thanks, Kurt. So I want to I want to transition just a bit um, and, and talk about another aspect of infrastructure as code that I think often gets overlooked. And 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 that is sort of the idea of of w- how much 
like code, infrastructure as code should be or should not be. And let me explain. You know, when, when you look at programming examples, they often stress the, the dry principle, don't repeat yourself. And they want you to build very, very modular code that has pieces that can be reused. So if you find that you need to do a function or, or, or something else, again, you can just call that same code. And so if you need to change the function or change the definition of something, you go one place and you change it in that one place. And then, you know, it's reflected everywhere, right? And that makes right. it easier to debug and easier to 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 troubleshoot, easier to you know maintain, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and so you see that being carried over in a lot of the tutorials and a lot of the examples of infrastructure as code, especially around Terraform. So you'll see people saying, "Oh, I, well, I know I need to create three instances, you know, uh, in 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 AWS or you know three VMs in Azure or or whatever the case may be." And so they're going to write, you know. Uh, piece of code that uses account mechanism and maybe they'll have some conditionals in there about, you know, whether other objects should be created or, or whatever. And, and so they're going to try and apply that dry principle to the, to the, to the Terraform code. But it, it also, it, it kind of seems like in order to, to really, you know, make this um, the, the most maintainable for the purposes of maintaining infrastructure, that that actually runs counter to what we'd want to do. Yeah, I, I agree. And we we're actually at, in an interesting time because there's a new release of Terraform coming out that adds loops. Um, and I, I'm really curious to see how they get used. But um, yeah, so infrastructure as code, I mean, infrastructure in general, you want to be explicit. You don't want implicit infrastructure. Um, the reason being is because, especially from like a security standpoint, uh, from a reliability standpoint, resilience and being able to improve infrastructure, if you don't know what's out there um, and if you can't build around it, then you're going to really struggle. Uh, I think we learned this lesson when the cloud came around, right? When the AWS came out, everybody just took their application machine and put it on AWS. Well, then AWS deleted it and we had to figure out, oh, okay, I didn't know that could be possible, that I could lose a server. So you really want to be explicit with how you're managing infrastructure. And so the, the do not repeat yourself mantra in code, um, I'll be honest, I think it's what killed configuration management <laughs> because if configuration management became such a pain because everybody dried up their configuration management. Terraform is really built around the idea of being explicit and putting those pieces together in this dependency graph so you can see it and view it and play with it before you run it. Um, and it's going to be an interesting time with this new release to see if loops and stuff, what they do and how they work. But uh, I'm not sure if that I even answered your question because I got kind of off on that. But <laughs> No, I, I think that's the perfect answer to the question because, you know, uh, I think that you, you and I are in alignment here in that, you know, rather than writing some, some piece of, you know, super elegant Terraform code that creates a group of instances or something of that nature, you may find it better although not as dry, but better in the long term to explicitly say, okay, here's, here's instance number one and here's instance number two and here's instance number three. And you can still take advantage of variables to say, okay, here's the instance type in the image or the AMI or, you know, whatever I'm going to use so that you're not, you know, having to, if you, if you do need to change those, you can just go change them in the variable definition and then they'll, they'll take effect when you go to do, you know, a plan and apply. Right. But rather than writing these, these super, you know, and, and let's face it, the Terraform syntax is not like the most readable syntax ever, right? So when you get into things like conditionals and, and testing for the, the the presence of a variable and then saying, yes, we're going to create an object or no, we're not, and that kind of thing, it takes, at least for me, it takes a little bit to kind of 
reason about, okay, what is this code doing exactly? And sometimes that's necessary, but you know, where we could be more explicit, it sounds like for the purposes of, of maintaining the, the infrastructure that our applications are running on, you know, the compute capacity and the disk capacity, all that, that we want to be more explicit because that gives us, uh, you know, sort of, uh, lack of a better term, planar control over what we're utilizing. Yeah, exactly. Like the count mechanism, for example, you mentioned that in Terraform. I use as a conditional of whether to build the resource or not, not the number of resources I want. Um, the reason being, and this I think is important infrastructure as well, and it goes along with why I like Terraform, but I think a lot of these examples have fell on their face, or uh, like the blog post and the, the documentation, um, is that when I run Terraform, I want to run the same command every time. I don't want to have to piece out a certain problem in Terraform. For example, if I put a count of three on a, a Terraform resource to create instances, it's going to generate three instances for me. In order for me to work on one of those instances, I now have to change my patterns and how I approach that infrastructure by using different flags to approach that one instance that I no longer manage, Terraform managers. Whereas, like you said, if I just created three separate resources, I can easily work on each one of those in isolation without impacting any of the other ones, without changing my workflows, without, um, I actually don't know if they're without there, sorry, <laughs> but I, I just kept going. But, uh, but yeah, so it allows me to be a lot more explicit about my work. It allows me to develop patterns that can build confidence in my workflows without me having to find different ways to work around Terraform or work around the cloud. Yeah, that that's perfect. I mean, I, I just think, I think that it also, in, in my opinion, I think it, that telling, telling users who want to, to take more advantage of Terraform and infrastructure as code in general. Um, but, but users who want to do more with this because they recognize, Hey, I need to embrace automation. I need to do, you know, I need to use these tools more because it's going to make me more effective as an IT professional. It, it also seems like if we're telling them, hey, don't worry about this, creating this, this perfectly dry code, just write the code that you need done. And, 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 you know, yeah, try to be smart about it, you know, use Terraform modules where it makes sense and that sort of thing. Right. But, but don't worry right. about making this just super elegant code. Just do what you need to do. I think in some aspects, it lowers the barrier to entry. Oh, very much so. I mean, the institutional knowledge we we're talking about, it's all gone. It's sitting right there in Terraform. And I can go work on a database server and know what's what's happening. Um, it, if you start trying to dry this stuff up, then you really you're really going to hurt yourself one night at three a.m. if you get paged. <laughs> it's just you don't want you want to be able to really work with these things in isolation, um, and that's why this like term defensive terraform because you want to be able to just use the tool with confidence you don't want to have to fight around some piece of software that's doing something that you didn't expect and anytime we can remove those expect you know those um those areas where we're not quite as confident it's just going to make our job a lot easier awesome perfect this has been a fantastic discussion kurt i really appreciate it i know we're coming up on time so uh, I want to be respectful of the listener's time. We always try to keep it right around 45 minutes of recorded content. We're getting close to that right now. Um, so just real quick, are there any sort of quick final thoughts before we wrap up that you want to share with listeners, other things that they should be you know, aware of? Yeah. So one of the 
greatest lessons I've learned in computers, uh, was taught by a gentleman at Heroku, was this idea that the way a computer works, the way events work, event streams, the way data should work, is this idea of an input, you filter the input, and then you produce some output. And I think Terraform fits this model really well. And when you're, when you're thinking about how you're writing your Terraform, especially from a defensive perspective, if you think about your configuration variables as that input to these resources, right? So you're, you want your resources to be simple and you want them to be very explicit. And those are your filters. And then you want to really buy into the output that Terraform can provide because you can start then to build up all of these dependency graphs that Terraform is going to try to automatic, automatically do. But you can build up these dependency graphs yourself within your infrastructure as code that allow you to work on these things in isolation. And just kind of thinking of that simple principle, input, filter, and output, really starts to break your infrastructure down in those ways that makes it a lot easier to maintain. Thanks, Kurt. That's a that's a really powerful tip, you know, just kind of giving giving listeners sort of a an abstract mental model, if you will, or a uh, a mechanism that they can begin to think about this um, in a, in a different way, I think will really be, really be useful. So, um, all right, so let, let's wrap up, Kurt. Um, thanks for your time. I think this, this conversation is going to be super helpful to a lot of listeners. And I really appreciate you taking your time real quick before we wrap up again. Um, how can people find you online? Like, are, you know, are you on Twitter? Are you on Facebook or, you know, where, where can people stalk you? Yeah. So I'm on, on Twitter. It's pretty much, I'm, I'm on Instagram as well, but I'm really never on it. Uh, but Twitter, Asenchi, A-S-E-N-C-H-I. Uh, I tweet a little bit there, but I'm always willing to talk and converse. Been there for a long time, and I, I really enjoy that community. So, Okay, awesome. Perfect. Well, thanks uh, again, Kurt, for, for joining me. Listeners, I hope that you have found this discussion of defensive Terraform and, and Kurt's insight into using Terraform more effectively to manage production infrastructure, using infrastructure's code methodologies to be useful. Um, I know that in my conversations with Kurt, uh, it has been enormously helpful in, in, in deepening my own understanding of Terraform and how to use it effectively. And so I, I really hope that listeners find that to be the case as well. We really appreciate uh, not only Kurt's time, but the time of the listeners who have taken to to listen to the show. As always, we appreciate your feedback and you know, feel free to uh, you know, provide a rating or a feedback or a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play Store or any one of the other you know, dozen places that uh, uh, via packet pushers uh, that you're able to get the Full Stack Journey podcast. Um, and we appreciate your time. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.